Hello, everyone. I wanted to start off this week's episode with looking at the Q&A from last week's episode. And I swear to God, I don't know if it's just been an emotional day for me or what's going on, if I'm about to start my period, I don't know. But when I scrolled and saw how many of you took the time out of your own day to just write something nice, I almost cried. Like, I was shocked. So thank you all so much. That really warmed my heart because I was not expecting that at all. I'm obviously not going to read all of them out loud on the podcast, but just know I personally read all of them, and thank you so much if you did write something. Rebecca said, Spotify says I've been listening to your podcast for 23,010 minutes, and that I'm a 0.05% fan. Thank you, Cam. But that is all for my rant in the intro, so let's get into it. I found the case we'll be looking at this week when I was browsing the Wisconsin newspaper archives, and what really piqued my interest was how the case, as the public understood it at the time when it happened, was not what it seemed. And that's all I will say on that. Thomas M. Balkin was born into a large family in Mauston, Wisconsin, one of seven children. After graduating from Mauston High School, Thomas took classes at the Southwest Technical School. Then, at the age of 21 in 1978, he began working as a maintenance man and clerk at Bernstad's Grocery. He continued to work there for the next nine years. On December 23, 1987, Thomas attended a small Christmas party held at the grocery store for employees. Tomorrow was a special day. It was Christmas Eve. And while most people would be at home with their family, Bernstad's grocery would remain open. And to perhaps enthuse the customers and employees that would be coming in, this year they would have a Santa. Thomas, who was 30 years old at the time, offered to wear the costume, and he was very excited to do so. But the following morning, Ken Balkin awoke to find that his brother still hadn't returned home. He knew Thomas had attended a small gathering the night before, but it was unlike him to not show up for work, especially when Thomas was supposed to be the main attraction at the grocery store. At 9 a.m. on Christmas Eve, Ken reported Thomas missing to police. Just 15 minutes later, his body was found at Riverside Park. Thomas Balkin had been murdered. Any sense of holiday joy at Bernstad's grocery immediately vanished when the news broke. Thomas was supposed to be the first person to use the Santa suit, and he was excited to hand out candy and talk to the youngsters coming in. His absence was immediately noticed. Children were coming in asking where Thomas was. Employees didn't know what to tell them. Weeks passed without any updates from authorities, who were being extremely tight-lipped. The public knew that Thomas's death had been ruled a homicide, but no one knew how he was killed or why. Over a month passed until police finally made an arrest on February 6, 1988. At 10.15 p.m., they entered the Black River Falls Tavern and took 29-year-old Kent Holzberger into custody. On the following Monday, Kent was arraigned on a first-degree murder charge in the death of Thomas Balkin. The charge came after authorities searched the mobile home and car of Kent's girlfriend and Kent's home outside of Mauston. Evidence included blood-stained clothes and boots and the alleged murder weapon. 
Mostyn Police Chief O.J. Foster told the Wisconsin State Journal that a second arrest could be made soon. At Kent's arraignment, his lawyer tried to dismiss the first-degree murder complaint, claiming it did not allege sufficient facts to sustain a murder charge. The judge issued Kent a $150,000 cash bond, equivalent to about $390,000 today. At a hearing the following morning, the judge dismissed the defense's motion after prosecutors revised the original complaint to add more details. The original complaint didn't specify the murder weapon and also stated that an unidentified informant had told police they overheard Kent admitting to the murder. The revised complaint omitted this allegation. Because I cannot access this complaint from the 80s, I'll have to rely on the reporting from Lee Christofferson for the Lacrosse Tribune. According to the complaint against Kent Holzberger, Thomas Balkin was killed by a severe beating and the resultant blood loss in a shelter house in Mostyn's Riverside Park. I believe this shelter house would also be classified as a public picnic area. It probably had some overhead shelter and picnic tables. Authorities allege that the claw end of a carpenter's hammer was the murder weapon, noting the puncture-type wounds on Thomas's head. Tests showed that blood on the hammer matched Thomas's blood type. Allegations from Kent's girlfriend, Barbara, are included in the revised complaint as well. Barbara told authorities that she, Kent, and Thomas had been in the same tavern on the night of the murder. The three played dice together and talked. Thomas told them he had just received a Christmas bonus check from his employer, presumably at the work party just hours prior. Later that night, the couple was riding around Riverside Park when they spotted Thomas walking near the river. Kent stopped the car and told Barbara he had to do something. She claimed Kent retrieved something from the trunk, walked to the picnic shelter, and returned ten minutes later. Before Kent got back into his car, he bent down in the snow and washed something off his hands. When Chief Foster investigated the murder scene the following morning, he apparently found the disturbed patch of snow that Barbara had referenced, and according to him, it had rust-like stains. The unidentified friend that claimed they heard Kent admit to murder also told police they saw Kent with Thomas's wallet the day his body was found. According to the chief, this friend was also being looked at as a possible suspect in the murder, and while not stated publicly, this quote-unquote friend was actually Kent's girlfriend, Barbara. She testified at Kent's preliminary hearing on February 17th, and some details were noticeably different from the criminal complaint. Barbara told the court she had known Thomas Balkin her whole life, so when he happened to walk into the Cork and Bottle Tavern on December 23rd, they struck up a conversation. Kent was within earshot of this conversation and apparently heard Thomas's excitement about his Christmas bonus. Sometime later, Thomas and Kent got into a verbal argument at the tavern. Barbara said she didn't know what the argument was about, but it led to Thomas leaving a few minutes later. Barbara and Kent had a couple more drinks before departing themselves, planning to drive to a different tavern in Hillsboro. Instead, Kent drove Barbara's car to Riverside Park, where they spotted Thomas walking along the street, not the river like she had previously said. 
Kent stopped the car and told Barbara he wanted to speak with Thomas. She said she couldn't overhear the conversation, but while she was waiting, another car pulled up to the scene. The unidentified occupants talked to Kent for about eight minutes. Kent then returned to Barbara's car, got something out of the trunk, and said he'd be back in a few minutes. Soon after, the other car with the unidentified occupants pulled away, and Barbara assumed Kent had gone with them. She no longer had eyes on Thomas Balkin. Barbara waited in the passenger seat for an additional 15 to 20 minutes, before Kent startled her by opening the door and asking her if she had something he could use to wipe off his hands. Kent further stated he had washed them off in the snow, so she gave him a paper towel. Barbara was upset her boyfriend had left her in the car alone. She got out of the vehicle and followed him, asking where he'd been. Barbara would later testify, quote, He said, I'll show you, or I'll tell you, or something like that. Kent led Barbara to the Riverside Park picnic shelter and stated that he and Thomas had got into a scuffle, and Thomas was now unconscious. After Barbara's eyes adjusted to the inside of the dark shelter, she saw a figure on the floor, Thomas's body. She testified, quote, I said we had to get help and walked toward him, but Kent pulled me away and said, leave him alone. Barbara attempted to approach Thomas again, but Kent stopped her once more before kicking Thomas and stating that he was beyond help. Barbara told the court, I knew he was dead. I got really scared and I thought I could be next. She attempted to leave the shelter, but Kent stopped her again, giving her a wooden-handled claw hammer. Quote, he told me he wouldn't hurt me and handed me a hammer to use as protection against him. Barbara told Kent she intended to walk three blocks to the police station, but Kent said he'd be long gone by the time she returned. Barbara stated, I started crying. I didn't know what to do. I was scared of him. I was scared of the cops. Barbara and Kent ended up returning to the car, placing the hammer in the trunk, and proceeding to a bar in Hillsboro, returning home after it closed. The next morning, Barbara noticed Kent carrying a new brown wallet, what she believed was Thomas Balkin's wallet. Under cross-examination by the defense, Barbara was asked why she didn't report the incident to police the next day, when Thomas's body was discovered. She claimed it was because, at the time, she didn't recall the events of that evening. The state pathologist who conducted Thomas's autopsy also testified in person. He told the court that Thomas sustained head injuries from a blunt instrument, but would not say the head injury alone caused his death, stating blood loss was also a contributing factor. Under cross-examination, the defense wanted to question the pathologist about the condition of Thomas's body, including whether there were bite marks on Thomas's genitals. But that line of questioning was quickly shot down by the judge after the state's objections. At the end of the lengthy hearing, the judge determined that there was enough evidence to go to trial. On March 8th, Kent Holzberger pleaded not guilty to the murder charge and an additional charge of theft by force, but the highlights of this hearing were allegations made by the defense. 
They accused prosecutors of obstructing their efforts to obtain a photograph of Ken's girlfriend, the prosecution's star witness, Barbara. An investigator employed by the defense had filed a request under the state's public records laws to obtain the photo, but was refused by the captain, who was apparently advised by the sheriff not to release it. The defense said they would seek a contempt of court order against prosecutors for not sharing the photo. However, prosecutors said Barbara's photo is evidence in an ongoing investigation, exempt from the public records law. The defense would need to file a motion in court to obtain the photo, instead of bypassing the judicial process. Another issue brought up by the defense in the same vein was the prosecution's refusal to disclose whether or not teeth impressions had been taken from Thomas's body. The defense was adamant that bite marks had been found on the victim's genitals, and stated, quote, If they did not take impressions, then we must move quickly to preserve that evidence. If the state hadn't taken those impressions, the defense said they would make a motion to exhume Thomas's body. When the next hearing date rolled around, Ken's public defense was still seeking evidence from the prosecution, and vice versa. This back and forth would never be resolved, because on April 27th, both public defenders withdrew from the case, citing ethical reasons known on April 15th. Oddly enough, the lawyers used the same reasons to withdraw from a separate case, in which a man was accused of fracturing a victim's skull with an unknown object. Just days before jury selection was set to begin in Kent's murder trial, the state made a shocking move. They dropped all the charges, citing insufficient evidence to prosecute. After seven months and two days behind bars, 29-year-old Ken Holzberger walked out of the county courthouse, shocked and pale, but a free man. His new defense attorney told the press, It was the honorable thing for the state to do. I only regret that Kent had to spend so much time in jail for a crime that he did not commit. He was shell-shocked, is the best way I can put it. He was as white as a ghost. I hope life can be better for him from this point on and I hope the authorities find the killer. The state dismissed the charges without prejudice, meaning they could charge Kent with the murder again, but this did nothing to ease fears in the town of Mostyn, because now, not only did prosecutors put the wrong man behind bars, but a killer was still on the loose. To the public, it seemed like the state never had enough evidence. They had made a motion to continue the trial, but after the judge denied it, all they could do was dismiss the charges entirely. According to the sheriff's office, the state had discovered new evidence that couldn't be ignored. They wouldn't give specifics about this new information, but stated that it was important to investigate because it went right to the nub of the case. And because it was brought to them right before the trial was set to begin, they weren't sure they could prove the case now against Kent. The murder of Thomas Balkan went unreported on for years, largely because there was nothing to update the public on. Behind the scenes, authorities were still investigating, but for Sheriff Richard McCurdy, it wasn't moving along quick enough. In late September of 1995, nearly eight years after the killing, the sheriff hired a retired Milwaukee police detective, Ken Ledger, 
to look into the case and other unsolved murders. Just three months later, Ledger got a confession, and four suspects were arrested. The suspects weren't named in the paper, but it was clear that Barbara had been the one to give a full confession and implicate the others. There was conflicting reports about this, but one of those suspects may have been Kent Holzberger. At the time, it was unclear who the other two men were, and their identities didn't really matter, because after sitting in jail for two days, prosecutors failed to file charges, freeing all four murder suspects. Sheriff McCurdy was fuming, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. He told them, It is too bad this happened. This was an important case to a lot of people, and to all of us. We made the arrest during the weekend when one of the players confessed her role and the role of the others in the case. We could not wait for them to get together and change their stories. Apparently, the prosecutors who were supposed to file charges had to remove themselves from the case because they had previously worked as defense attorneys and represented several of the murder suspects. It was a conflict of interest that wouldn't fly during a murder trial, and the sheriff was angry that arrangements hadn't been made to have a special prosecutor handle the case. On the other hand, a spokesman for the attorney general's office believed the arrests were made too soon, and they felt more information and discussion was needed before handing the case to another prosecutor. He also said that the sheriff's request was highly unusual, because usually charges are confirmed and filed, quote, before you put someone in jail for an eight-year-old murder. Authorities had apparently messed up again, and that setback caused an additional year to go by before another arrest. This time, it was just one of the four previous suspects. On November 12, 1996, 35-year-old Daniel R. Butner was formally charged with second-degree murder in the death of Thomas Balkin. Daniel was held under a $150,000 cash bail with a preliminary hearing scheduled for November 20th. The Chippewa Herald-Telegram detailed the filings. The criminal complaint quotes Daniel as saying he and another man, identified as Glenn Michael Jones, killed Thomas to get money to buy cocaine. Another witness, Phil Pecola, told investigators the two men attempted to buy $300 worth of cocaine from him, but he ultimately didn't have any. Daniel Butner told authorities they followed Thomas from a bar where they'd seen him flashing a wad of money, bragging about winning a dice game. They approached Thomas at the shelter in Riverside Park, where Glenn Jones asked for the money. Daniel Butner denied hitting Thomas, claiming Glenn Jones had been the one to beat him. But Glenn Jones couldn't defend himself from these accusations because he had died in a car accident several years ago. The special prosecutor assigned to the case said, an autopsy showed that Thomas Balkin suffered a skull fracture and broken jaw, and the murder weapon was either a hammer, nail puller, or similar tool. Authorities were more specific. They believed Thomas had been struck with a set of nunchucks, a weapon used in martial arts. Daniel claimed that after the murder, he and Glenn left Thomas on the ground at the shelter and went to try and buy cocaine. 
So if Barbara was telling the truth to authorities years ago, the unidentified men she'd seen pull up in a separate car were most likely Daniel Butner and Glenn Jones. But the stories still didn't add up. Why did Barbara implicate her own boyfriend, Kent, in the murder? Because according to her story, Daniel and Glenn had already left when the murder took place. And now we have Daniel saying that Glenn, who's been dead for years, was the real killer. Barbara had also been certain that she held the murder weapon, a hammer, but authorities now believed a set of nunchucks had been used. The conflicting details in Barbara's story of the night of the murder made sense once I found out that Daniel Butner is Barbara's brother. Barbara was trying to protect her brother, so she threw her boyfriend Kent under the bus and almost put an innocent man in prison for the rest of his life. The nunchuck theory was solid for police, and in their minds, pointed towards Daniel Butner's guilt. Back in May of 1987, Daniel was arrested for attacking his girlfriend's former husband with, you guessed it, nunchucks. Daniel was ultimately sentenced to 18 months in prison, but while he had been out on bail, Thomas Balkin was murdered. After a year of delays, Daniel Butner's murder trial began on October 28, 1997, with a jury from Green Lake County. In opening statements, Special Prosecutor Randy Schneider walked jurors through the night of the murder. He said Daniel Butner had been playing dice at a tavern when he lost several hundred dollars to the victim, Thomas Balkin. Within hours, Daniel had followed Thomas to Riverside Park and fatally beat him before taking his wallet. A 10-year-old boy saw Daniel Butner just moments after, whose hands were covered in blood. Thomas's younger brother, Ken, was the first witness to take the stand. He described Thomas as having a mild mental disability whose social life had revolved around bowling. Quote, he liked to go downtown and do the bars one day a week after bowling. Prosecutors then shifted to the discovery of Thomas's body. In the early hours of Christmas Eve, Ken went looking for Thomas after he'd failed to return home. When he arrived at the grocery store, he found Thomas's bike still there. Thomas was epileptic and couldn't drive a car. After a fruitless search, Ken reported his brother missing to police. Thomas's body was found soon after. Eric Melby, whom Daniel had attacked months prior to the murder, was allowed to take the stand. Melby had previously been married to a woman who then dated and eventually married Daniel Butner. On May 31, 1987, Eric and Daniel got into an altercation at a Mostyn tavern. Daniel was apparently very intoxicated, and after they scuffled, Eric went home. As he was preparing for bed, though, Daniel burst through his front door with nunchucks. He whirled the nunchucks towards Eric's head, who deflected them with his hand, resulting in a fracture. During the attack, Daniel told Eric, I'm going to kill your ass. The men fought and struggled through several rooms in the house. Mostyn police broke up the fight at a point when Daniel was on top of Eric and Eric's daughter's bedroom. Eric's testimony was especially damning for Daniel Butner because it was very similar to what Daniel was being accused of now. 
He had gotten into a confrontation at the bar, followed the victim home, and threatened to kill them while attempting to do so. And then on Christmas Eve that same year, Daniel Butner gets into an altercation with Thomas Balkin, and over a dice game, Thomas wins hundreds of dollars from Daniel. Daniel waits for Thomas to leave, but then ultimately follows him, beats him with the nunchucks, but this time, Daniel Butner ultimately kills his victim. Daniel Butner's defense team came in strong. At the time of Thomas's murder, Daniel's nunchucks were hanging on a wall in the Moston Police Department. On top of that, a forensic pathologist testified that nunchucks would not have caused Thomas's injuries. The defense would later tell the press, quote, I thought we were able to show nunchucks couldn't have been the weapon. Therefore, the state's entire theory was incorrect. However, according to the state, Daniel owned more than one set of nunchucks. He apparently manufactured them. And there was further testimony that on the night of the murder, Daniel was carrying a pair of nunchucks and a pouch on his waistband. Additionally, even though the state pathologist could not testify for certain that Thomas was killed with nunchucks, a martial arts expert said the wounds were consistent with that weapon. After five days of trial, it all came down to the jury. They deliberated for five and a half hours before returning with a verdict. Daniel R. Butner was found guilty of first-degree murder in the beating death of Thomas Balkin. The conviction was a relief to the small community of just 3,500 people. Thomas's death was the only murder in Mostyn in at least 15 years, and it took authorities 10 of those years to get a conviction. The judge sentenced Daniel to life in prison plus five years for being armed with a dangerous weapon. Two months after the trial, on the 11-year anniversary of Thomas's murder, police arrested Daniel's sister, Barbara Seifert, on charges of perjury and obstruction. Her former boyfriend, Kent Holzberger, stated, It's about time justice is done. I'm at peace now. There's no mention of Barbara's charges or conviction, if any, in the newspaper archive, so the outcome of that is unknown. But we do know the outcome for the convicted murderer, Daniel Butner. After serving less than 24 years in prison, he was paroled sometime in 2021. He currently lives and works somewhere in Wisconsin. He is also active on Facebook. His bio states, Life just too short. Live it to the fullest and pay it forward. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and thank you to the new accomplices, Ash, Ray, E, Jasmine, O, and Margaret, H. If you want to support the pod, please consider becoming a Patreon member or just tune in every week, because that's really nice too. Anyways, I hope you all have a good day, evening, or night. Goodbye.